You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Father, I'm just going to have Jordan come up and lead us in a couple extra songs, and then we'll get out of here, go watch some football. It'll be great. Man, this is a tough passage. It really is. I assure you, I did not wake up Monday morning and say, you know what? I hope I get to preach about incest this week. Uh, Handing someone over to Satan, judging people in the church, purging the evil person from among us. I hope that's what the sermon is on. If this is your first time at Providence or you're visiting with us today, I'm sorry about that. Uh, This strange little passage just happens to be where we are in our study of 1 Corinthians, and we're not gonna skip over the hard parts. So here we are. We're gonna tackle this passage uh, today. And you know, I think we might actually find something to be encouraged about in it because it has much to say about our identity as the church, and it has much to say about how we're to love one another as members in the church, uh, even if it's tough love. But there's no getting around the fact that this is a difficult passage. It is a rebuke, much like most of 1 Corinthians is a rebuke. If you've been with us for the first four chapters, Paul has been rebuking the Corinthians in the first four chapters because there's divisions in the church. People are fighting with each other, competing with one another, dividing, forming factions around different leaders. And at the root of their division was pride, arrogance, boasting, The Corinthians saw themselves as spiritually wise and spiritually mature, but in reality, they're immature. He calls them spiritual infants. They're just like little babies, spiritually speaking. And and one proof of their immaturity was what they were tolerating in the church, what they were allowing to exist in the church and, 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 and say, well, that's no big deal. And so Paul begins a new section in chapter five of his letter where he starts to address some of these things. 1 Corinthians chapter five is one of the key passages in the Bible about church discipline. And it's one of the most ignored passages in the Bible. You see why. It's one of the least applied passages in the Bible. So we have much to learn from it. So here's our plan of attack. We're gonna try to answer some questions from this passage. There's no way we will answer all the questions that you have in your mind in the short time we have together, but I'm gonna try to answer four questions. Number one, what's happening here? Number two, what's at stake? What's at stake in this situation? Number three, what does Paul call the Corinthians to do? And then lastly, what does it mean for us today? All right, let's look at what's happening here in the first couple of verses. If you don't have a Bible and want to pull it up, you want to open a Bible, there's some black Bibles in the pew. Uh, It's on page 897 if you want to see it and follow along. 897 in those Bibles. What is happening in this situation? Look at verse 1. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported, Paul says, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. 
ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So you can tell that Paul is really upset. He's on a low-level boil. He's been hearing reports about something happening in the church, and apparently everybody knows about it because Paul's not even in town, and he's heard about it wherever he is. It's getting back to him. There is a case of sexual immorality within the church. Specifically, a man is in, on, is in an ongoing sexual relationship with his father's wife. Now, it's probably not his mom, probably not his biological mom. It's probably his stepmom, but still, right? If you can call her mom under any circumstance, right? It's your first clue. This is not the right thing to be doing. But this is an ongoing situation, in the church, it's the way it's written. It's unrepentant sin. That's really important for us to know in this passage. We're talking about unrepentant sin. It's not like he kind of just blew it one time and then he was like, oh, that was wrong and he confessed his sin and he turned from it and he sought to change. No, he's continuing to do this like it's perfectly okay, like God's okay with it. That's the situation. And Paul says, this kind of sexual immorality is not even tolerated among the pagans. It's the word for the Gentiles, which is crazy because we know that Corinth was a sex-crazed culture. We've said it before, but Corinth was well-known for its promiscuity, sexually speaking. It was anything goes in Corinth, just like it was in many Roman cities. But you know what was illegal in Roman culture? Incest. You can't do that. You can't go there. And so Paul says, hey, if the pagans say that's a bridge too far, that ought to give you pause. Paul is shocked by this sin, but you know what he's even more shocked by is the church's response to it. He says in verse two, this is going on and you are arrogant. You are proud. And, and we don't know if they were proud because of the man's sin or they were proud in spite of it. I'm inclined to say that they were proud in spite of it. I think Paul is saying, hey, you guys think you're this great church you think you're so mature and so wise, but you're letting this go on in the church. You're tolerating this gross immorality all the while you're just arrogant about the kind of church you are. And he says in verse two, you should be mourning about this. In other words, you should be acting like somebody died, but instead you're acting like everything's fine. Meanwhile, sin is destroying the lives of people in your church and it's destroying the witness of your church in the city because even the pagans are saying, dude, <laughs> we heard about what's going on at that church and that is messed up. That's messed up. Now, we don't know who this guy was who was sleeping with his stepmom. Maybe he was a powerful person in the community. Maybe he was a leader of some sorts. Maybe he was someone who gave a lot of money to the church. Maybe he had a lot of influence over a lot of people, so nobody wanted to ruffle his feathers. So that's, not, that's why they're not dealing with it. Maybe he was just a regular guy and, and nobody wanted to get involved in his business because they thought, that's not my responsibility. Whatever he does in the privacy of his own bedroom, that's his business. But Paul says in verse two, let him be removed from among you. In other words, remove him from your fellowship. In other words, he calls the community to do something, to take action. He calls them to responsibility in this situation. Richard Hayes has a wonderful little commentary on 1 Corinthians that shaped a lot of my thoughts for this sermon. 
And Richard Hayes says this. He says, Paul insists that the community has a moral responsibility for the conduct of its members and that the conduct of the individual members, even private conduct, affects the life of the community. See, it goes both ways. Because in Paul's mind, we are a body. We're connected. So Paul is appealing to corporate responsibility here. He, he says the community has a responsibility to take action, right? But before we look at what he calls them to do, I want us to consider what's at stake in this situation. We've looked at what's happening. What's at stake here? In other words, what is Paul's main concern in this, this whole situation? Well, he answers, I think, that question by giving us two images in verses six through eight. The first is just a common cooking illustration. And the second image connects the church to the most significant event in Old Testament history. Look at, look at the cooking illustration. Look at verse six. This is the first image. Verse six, he says, your boasting, your arrogance is not good. So he's rebuking them again for their arrogance. Do you not know? In other words, you know this. Everybody knows this that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So Paul says, think about bread for a minute. Sorry to all the gluten-free folks, but think about bread just for a moment is what he wants the, the readers to do. And he says, everyone knows when you're baking bread, it only takes a little bit of yeast to leaven the whole batch of dough because yeast is a fungus isn't that great? That multiplies and spreads quickly uh, and pretty soon the whole batch is filled with it. And he's like, that's how unrepentant sin is in the church. It just takes a little bit, but if you leave it unchecked, it spreads quickly and it, inf it infects the whole community. It changes the nature of the whole church is what he's trying to say. So what's at stake in this situation based on that image? What's at stake is the health and integrity of the whole community. Paul is concerned about the whole lump of dough, the whole batch of dough. He tells the church they've got to clean out the old leaven so they can be a new unleavened lump of dough. And then he says, and that's what you really are. You're already that. Why? Continuing in verse seven, here's the second image. Midway verse, through verse seven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, the feast, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul zooms out here. He goes big picture and he connects the identity of the church to the most significant redemptive event in the history of Israel, the Passover. Remember in Exodus chapter 12, you can read about the Passover. On the night God delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he instructed every Israelite household to slaughter a lamb and to put some of the blood on the doorposts of their houses. God was gonna pass through Egypt that night and strike down every firstborn in the land as a final act of judgment on the Egyptians. But the blood of the lamb on Israel's houses would mark them as a distinct people under God's protection. Right? They were being set apart as a distinct people to be delivered out of slavery by the power of God. 
And when the Lord saw the blood on the Israelite houses, he passed over them and no one in their houses was destroyed. They were saved by the blood of the lamb. And in years to come, Israel was supposed to celebrate the Passover every year. And part of the festival, part of the feast was eating unleavened bread for seven days. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a good name for it. What you had to do during those seven days, during the Passover, was get all the leaven out of your house and only eat unleavened bread for seven days. You can, again, you can read about this in Exodus chapter 12. This was a way for them to remember that on that night, Israel left Egypt in a hurry so they didn't have time to leaven their bread. Paul connects the church to the Passover here. He says, listen guys, Christ, who is the Passover lamb, the lamb, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, meaning it's done, it's finished. His blood now marks us as a distinct people. As the church, we're set apart as a holy community, that's what holy means, to be set apart, delivered out of slavery by the power of God. So in a sense, every day is like Passover for us. That means our community should be distinct. We should look different. We should not be characterized by the old leaven of malice and evil, unrepentant sin. We should be characterized by the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So based on this image, what's at stake in the situation of the guy sleeping with his stepmom? Well, Paul says it's the integrity of the whole community the health of the community, the holiness of the community, the witness of the community, that's what's at stake. That's Paul's main concern, the integrity of the community. So he calls the community to take action. What does he call them to do? We've looked at what's happening. We've looked at what's at stake. What does he call them to do? Go back to verse two. Right at the end of verse two, this is his instruction to them. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. I'm not here, but I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What in the world is going on here? <laughs> to our ears, that sounds so harsh. It sounds so intolerant. It sounds so unloving, doesn't it? But I want you to think about the scenario again. You got a member of the church who is openly flaunting his immorality to the point where everybody's talking about it. And, and Christians in the community are starting to get confused by it. Some of them are beginning to wonder if this kind of behavior might be okay. And people outside the church who aren't Christians are hearing about it and are going, wow, that doesn't, that's not right. That's not good. So this sin is threatening the integrity of the whole community. It's health. It's witness. And so Paul says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning with his power, with his authority, you're to remove this man from membership in the church, only he says it way more strongly than that. <laughs> he says, deliver him to Satan. What, what does that even mean, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Well, look, it doesn't mean some weird, satanic, dark magic ritual. That's not what he's talking about. What, it's, it's really just a simple way, it was an expression uh, to, to say that this person is now gonna be put outside the protection of the church. 
They're put outside of the protection of the church, which is a dangerous place to be. You believe that, right? It's a dangerous place to be. The Passover image, I think, is helpful uh, in, in thinking about what he means by this. Remember in the Passover, as long as you were in the house, marked by the blood of the lamb, you were under God's protection. But if you were outside the house, you were on your own, right? You were exposed to the destroyer. To be removed from the church is to be removed from the house, the house covered by the blood of Jesus. It's to be unprotected. It's to be cast out into the world where Satan still holds sway. What's one of the names for Satan in the Bible? The God of this world. He's in control out there and there's no protection. You're on your own out there. That's what the image means. This still sounds harsh to us, but I want you to remember the purpose of it is the protection of the community and also ultimately the salvation, the good of the one being disciplined. Did you notice in verse five, right? Look at how verse five ends. The goal of this in this person's life is salvation for the one being disciplined. The aim is to bring this person to their senses, to kind of shake them awake so that their flesh might be destroyed. That doesn't mean their body, it means their sinful nature. It means their rebellious nature against God. That needs to be destroyed so they would repent and turn back to him so they can be saved. That's the purpose. The goal of discipline is repentance and restoration. What we are reading about here is really the final step in what we call church discipline. It's the final step and it should be very rare. This actually only happens after every other attempt and avenue of reconciliation and repentance has been tried. Jesus actually lays out the steps of church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Listen to how Jesus lists the steps. This is how it should look. Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. This is step one, private correction. I'm using David Platt's titles for these steps. Private correction, that's step one. That means go talk to the one who's sinning. Don't talk about him behind his back. Go talk to him and go alone. Don't take a bunch of people and gang up on him. Step one, private correction. Jesus goes on, but step two, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is step two, small group clarification. <laughs> right? Private correction and then small group clarification. Take a couple of others who know this person. This helps them feel the weight of what you're talking to them about. Understand the seriousness of their sin, but it also helps you make sure, am I seeing this thing correctly? It's helpful to have other eyes on it. Jesus goes on, step three. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. So step three is church admonition. Church admonition. This is where the leadership of the church starts to get involved. The person is not listening to you. The person is not listening to their small group. So they needed a more official warning that, hey, you're in deep waters here, right? Th this is serious stuff that you're walking in. And then the final thing that Jesus says is, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat him or her as an unbeliever. 
this is the final step in church discipline, church exclusion. This is removal from church membership. This is 1 Corinthians chapter five, what we're looking at today. Now, when you do that, it doesn't mean they can't come to church anymore, right? It, it, it just means that they're not coming to church with all the benefits of being a family member. They're not, they're not coming to church as one of the family. But the hope is that they will eventually repent of their sin and come back into the community. Now, back in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul gives some points of clarification about church discipline. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verse nine. He clarifies a few things. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, so there's a, a letter prior to this one. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. You'd have to like leave the world altogether if you weren't gonna associate any, with anyone in those situations. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not calling you to be separate from the world. I'm not calling you to be isolationist. I'm not calling you to separate from all the people around you in your everyday life, but I am calling you to be a counter-cultural community. In other words, the church is not supposed to look exactly like the world, which is what the Corinthians were in danger of. Then verse 11, look what he says. Verse 11, but now in this letter, I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, they call themselves a Christian if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So it's not just the unrepentant uh, sexual sin that needs to be dealt with in the church. It's things like unrepentant greed and idolatry and slander and cheating people. These are moral categories ethical categories found in God's law, in the book of Deuteronomy, God speaks against these things. And what Paul is saying is if someone is calling themselves a, a Christian, but they're persisting in these types of sins in an unrepentant way, meaning they're saying, this is fine. This is not wrong. This is my settled way of life. This is just who I am. It's not that they struggle every now and then with these things, but they're like, no, this is right. And I'm gonna live this way and they're calling themselves a Christian, he says, then you're not, a, you're not to associate with them or even to eat with them. Again, that's rough. This doesn't mean you can't talk to the person or you can't eat food in their presence. The word associate means to keep company with them. It's an intimate term. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't express intimate fellowship by doing things like eating together in your home or sharing the communion meal. Uh, together. This is why a person under church discipline uh, is asked not to take communion. Because communion is a meal of intimate fellowship. Communion is a meal that celebrates the death of Jesus to take away sin. But the unrepentant sinner is holding on to their sin. They're flaunting their sin. They're saying it's no big deal. They're trampling on the grace of Jesus. Finally, verse 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, Paul says. I don't have anything to do with judging those outside the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We usually, a lot of times we flip this, don't we? 
A lot of times we judge the world and we give the church a pass. <laughs> like we, we, we moan about how the culture is declining and then we ignore unrepentant sin in the church. Paul says, hey, don't worry about the world. God's got that. God will make things right. God can figure that out. He says, you fulfill your responsibility of exercising discipline in the membership of the church. God has called you to that. And he's given you authority in the name of Jesus and responsibility to do that. So purge the evil person from among you. Again, that sounds really harsh to us, but that is a direct quote from Deuteronomy. Six times in Deuteronomy, after these moral categories that he lists in verse 11, it says, purge the evil person from among you. Why does Paul quote Deuteronomy? Because he's saying, listen, the word of God to Israel, commanding them to protect the integrity of the covenant community is the word of God to you, the church, today. This is heavy stuff. Uh, it's hard to hear, and I know that I've probably raised more questions than I've answered. Uh, but I wanna just answer one more question, and that is, what does it mean for us today? What does it mean for our church, for Providence? I wanna close with a few points of application. What does this passage say to us? Here's the first thing I think it says to us. We are called to take responsibility for one another. We're called to take responsibility for one another. We are a covenant community bound together in Christ so we are responsible for one another, which flies in the face of our cultural value of moral individualism. In our culture, we just hear, you're just responsible for yourself. Just take care of yourself. That's, all I, that's the level of responsibility that I have, just me. But within the church, I have to care about your moral and spiritual life and you have to care about my moral and spiritual life. And there's tremendous protection in that. That's part of the protection in it. I mean, I've seen people, uh, even in my own neighborhood, who were not in the church, go through rocky times in, in their marriage. One of the spouses was having an affair. Uh, and listen, there was no one, best I could tell, who had any sense of responsibility to step into that, to help them, to call them to account. It was kind of like, it was just their private business. They were, just, they were like outside the house just trying to figure it out. It didn't end well. I've seen church members go through rocky times in their marriage where one spouse was having an affair and the church stepped in to discipline that spouse. And you know what? In one case that I can think of, there was repentance and the marriage was saved. Now, that, there's no guarantee that it will turn out that way. But it's wonderful to have a community that takes responsibility for the health and wholeness of its members, that kind of responsibility. This is one of the reasons we emphasize church membership because church membership is the only way to know who, who, are we, who are we responsible for, who am I responsible for? So you wanna be a member of the church. You, you wanna be in the house. You wanna be under the protective umbrella of the church. We're called to take responsibility for one another. Secondly, we're called to take sin seriously. This passage calls us to take sin seriously because sin is like cancer. It starts small, but then it spreads and pretty quickly the whole body is infected. It's just like the leaven illustration. So we have to take sin seriously even when it's small. You crucify it is what the Bible says. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Take it seriously. And because of that, we want to as a church have a culture of repentance. 
We know that none of us are sinless. Uh, None of us have moved beyond our struggle with sin. The question is, what are we doing with sin? Are we turning from it or are we holding on to it and flaunting it and celebrating it? Unrepentant sin is the sin that really destroys individuals in a community. So it's one of the reasons we confess our sin together in worship every week. We want it to be a norm that we are a confessing people, right? It's why our GCs and our D groups talk about our actual lives. We want it to be the norm to talk about the sin in our lives and then apply the gospel to it. Because our lives don't stop with the sin, they stop with Christ redeeming us out of that, right? So called to take responsibility for one another, called to take sin seriously. Thirdly, we're called to practice church discipline. We're called to it, both formally and informally. We're called to practice church discipline. Most churches don't do this because it feels inconvenient. It's hard. It feels intolerant. It feels unloving. But listen, discipline is not unloving, right? It's a huge part of what love is. Hebrews chapter 12 says, God disciplines the one he loves. How do you know you're his child? His discipline in your life is part of that. So we are called to do this with one another, usually informally. Like we shouldn't let things get to the first Corinthians five level, right? Let's, let's start further upstream with one another. Let's start way further upstream in that Matthew 18 progression. Let's speak the truth in love to one another when things are small, before the, the river gets too wide, further downstream. Let's keep short accounts with one another. Let's be willing to confront one another. Let's be willing to have hard conversations with one another. We're called to practice church discipline. And then finally, we're called to bear witness to the world about what Jesus is like. We are called to to show the world what Jesus is like by bearing witness to him. And listen, unchecked sin in a church tarnishes that witness. It tarnishes our witness. I've thought a lot about the report that, that came out earlier this year about how the leadership of a large Christian denomination suppressed reports of sexual abuse by many of its ministers for over two decades. Hundreds of accused abusers were allowed to continue in ministry. And when that story broke, every news outlet covered it. And it's like the world was saying, see, see, followers of Christ, they're not any better. In fact, they're worse. They're worse because they put up with this kind of garbage and yet they're spiritually arrogant. They, they hide stuff like this and yet they're arrogant spiritually. They're worse. When we don't deal with sin in the church, the church gives Jesus a bad name. But when we confess our sin, when we turn from our sin, what are we telling the world? We're telling the world that Jesus is better than anything sin has to offer. It's beautiful. When we do that, we're bearing witness to the fact that Jesus loves righteousness. Jesus loves justice. Jesus loves truth. We're bearing witness to the fact that Jesus has overcome sin and freed us to live, not in darkness, but in the light, which is the best and only way to live. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let's celebrate the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's do that. Let's pray before we come together to the communion table. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. 
For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.